Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and today we're going to talk about advances in IVF. And we have a, a, a special guest who is involved in research that uh, we're hoping is going to change the landscape of in vitro fertilization. Uh, his name is Dr. Kevin Duty. Um, uh, Dr. Duty is board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, graduated Baylor College of Medicine, um, and he has been uh, voted best doctors in America. Um, he's also been a past president, or no, serving now, I think past president, yes, yeah, Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology. Um, and he was uh, uh, instrumental in all of our SART data uh, changes that have been going on. He's in private practice in care fertility in Dallas. And please welcome me, uh, uh, join me in, in welcoming uh, Dr. Kevin Duty. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, my, my uh, uh, thanks for taking out of your busy, busy schedule to join us. Uh, Kevin, let's, let's talk about SART uh, initially, and, and then we'll start making our way into uh, the exciting uh, uh, breakthrough that you, you just were involved in. So what do you think, uh, during your tenure in, in, in SART, what were the challenges in the statistics, and, and what, what, what did you, what, how would you summarize what, what, uh, the changes that you made? Well, the, the uh, success outcomes reports uh, really had not been keeping up with the changes in clinical practice. So uh, the emphasis was primarily on uh, the birth rate per uh, embryo transfer, and, and many of the cycles that we do um, don't involve doing fresh embryo transfers anymore. They, uh, all the embryos might be frozen. Um, pre-implantation genetic testing has <clears throat> become more and more common. So what we had to do was to um, uh, recapture cycles. Uh, I guess I should back up. In about 2000, um, SART and CDC got together and, and made a rule that uh, in, in the case of an assisted reproductive technology cycle in which all the embryos were frozen, that that would not um, be reported on the success reports. And the purpose of that was at that time there were very limited numbers of cycles, less than 300 <clears throat> nationally, that were being done in this fashion. And they were primarily being done for women who are about to face chemotherapy, say for breast cancer. So these were fertility preservation. The outcomes were not going to be known within the reporting time frame. Fast forward a decade and many uh, ART cycles were being done not for long-term fertility preservation. They were done with the intent to get pregnant in the short term. However, they were freeze-alls and so they weren't being included in the success report. So we had to, we had to go through a process of recapturing those cycles. Yeah, yeah. And, and so for our listeners, uh, the way that you could find uh, uh, statistical outcomes from all the, or most of the IVF centers uh, in the country is that you can go on uh, www.sart.org, and those are all of the IVF clinics that are members that report to SART. Now that's not mandated, but what is mandated is the uh, reporting to the CDC. 
Um, and that is something that all IVF clinics are mandated by law to do. So that website is cdc.gov and forward slash ART for assisted reproductive technology. So we're going to fast forward and, and talk about, you know, the, the cost of IVF, uh, unfortunately, uh, without having mandated coverage throughout the country, um, is, is exceedingly uh, difficult for, for many patients um, who need IVF and, and otherwise are having difficulty uh, uh, coming up with the funds to do that. Um, but you, you uh, being on the board of Invacel Bioscience, uh, you've come up with something that, that appears to have uh, been a game changer in terms of uh, monitoring, reducing the cost of monitoring, and reducing the cost of the laboratory. So um, uh, share with us uh, about that, Kevin, as, as to how did this first come about, um, uh, thinking that you would grow embryos uh, inside a woman's vagina. And so how, how, were, how were the preliminary um, work done in this area? Um, before I answer that, I'm going to reemphasize your first point about about the financial issues associated with what we do. We we know when we compare the, the utilization of IVF in states with coverage, or in countries that that, that pay for it, there's a four fourfold increased utilization. So that means three quarters of our patients can't afford the the way we do it conventionally. So then backing up. To the, to the last part of your question, um, the concept of, of intravaginal culture is surprisingly it's not it's not brand new. Um, it was invented by uh, an embryologist uh, in in France in 1985, and it was quite happenstance. So there was a an IVF case that had just been done. The egg retrieval had been done. The sperm had been processed. And there was a storm, and the lights went out. And they, at that time, they didn't have backup generators or power supplies. And so the embryologist was rather inventive uh, using a flashlight. He loaded the eggs and the sperm into, into a vial that one would have normally used to freeze sperm. <clears throat> and, and he capped it, and he wrapped it in a little bit of, of parafilm, a little covering. And then he put it in the woman's vagina, hoping that the power would come on in 15 minutes or so. But it, but it didn't. Uh, the power stayed off for a couple days. Um, when, the, when it did go on, the lady came back in, and lo and behold, she had developing embryos in there just as if they had been in a laboratory. Dr. Claude Renew has to be credited with this uh, invention or discovery, if, if, uh, if you would call it that, and, and he first reported a series of these patients uh, in 1988, so uh, 30 years ago. Now, now, the drawback at that time, the limitation, was that these devices were improvised. They weren't designed for it. And many times there would be contamination of the media. That would, uh, that would destroy the, the eggs or developing embryos. Uh, so there would be potentially air bubbles that are hard to get out, and, and then the, the embryos can dry up. So what was needed was a device that was specially designed for this. So, so necessity is truly the mother of invention. It really is. Mm-hmm. So when you when you put the eggs and the sperm um, in in, uh, in in the vagina, uh, uh, was the intention to grow to day five of embryo development, or or were you looking for the cleavage stage, which is day three? Well, see that that's that's where I came in. So uh, Claude uh, had had put together a company and it went through some. 
stages, but they, they wound up engineering a device that was capable of doing uh, embryo culture, uh, but only really good embryo culture for, for up to three days. And the, the limit there, and there were, so there were some limitations. And so when I was introduced to the device about almost five years ago now, <clears throat> um, it, it had not been used for extended culture, and I was only interested if we could do it that way because if you, as you well know, if you transfer embryos on day two or three, uh, you're not able to discern which embryos are likely to, to make babies, so you'll have to transfer multiple embryos in order to have reasonable success rates. So I, I worked on, um, on, on uh, say, refining it, refining the, the the system in such a way that we can we can very well culture to five days, and in fact, in in, in certain ways, I think it's better than our laboratory incubators. So obviously, one me, uh, uh, culture media for the embryos, single, uh, and and you're you're putting the eggs and the sperm in the vagina, uh, not fertilizing uh, outside the body. Correct. Everything is happening while the uh, eggs and sperm are in the vagina. So when Claude had, had originally devised the process and the way that, that he was um, doing it was putting the sperm and the egg together in the little device, in the little plastic container that, that then goes into the vagina. And, um, and, and, and that certainly does allow fertilization and, and early embryo development to take place. But, but the presence of, of many sperm in the media for too long a period of time. It, it uses the, the nutrients and produces metabolic waste. So it, it, it really, um, that method was not, was not the perfect way to do it. So um, I, I had found that there was a group in, uh, in uh, Scandinavia that had done a trial where they had looked at just a very short co-incubation of sperm and egg together for 30 seconds, um, comparing it to, to the traditional approach where we leave the sperm and the egg together for a longer period of time. And what they found was that they had equivalent success rates. So um, one of the things that make, makes this work is to mix the sperm and the egg together very briefly at the time of the egg retrieval. Um, just, and I, I was fearful of 30 seconds, but we went to a five-minute co-incubation. So they're then loaded into the vise and then transferred back into the vagina. So that the sperm are there. They're co they're stuck to the coverings of the egg, um, but they're not there in, in large numbers. And so you, you put the amount of sperm in uh, surrounding each egg that you would normally do with conventional insemination, and then you put it into the vagina. Yeah, so, so we do that, and then we take, it, take those eggs out of the sperm and, and rinse them through um, media that has no sperm, and then those eggs that, that have the sperm in you know, in, in contact with the with the cumulus cells, with the with the cell coverings uh, of the egg, that that goes into the device. weren't you weren't you fearful of any type of manipulation of the egg? You would lose sperm with uh, in such a short period of time. Uh, yes, I, I, I was <laughs> fearful, but it it, it, <laughs> it was. It, it's good. Yeah. It's good that it works. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, now, that, um, that that short. That short co-incubation hadn't been, uh, you know, it was only done one time, and it was about 2000, uh, 2005 studies. So I was glad that it, it, it works. Now, uh, obviously, this is for non-male factor patients because ICSI 
uh, is is uh, un, uh, uh, unable to be performed. Uh, correct. So uh, I don't do ICSI on these because, but it, there have been um, clinics that now have used it with, in conjunction with ICSI. They take the eggs, they inject the sperm, and then they load the sperm into the device. I, I don't like that um, because I think part of the quality assurance, quality control in an IVF laboratory with ICSI is being able to follow up on your fertilization rates and see how many of the eggs wind up going atretic. And, and this process really doesn't readily lend itself to that. So, so they would inject the egg within minutes of, of egg retrieval? Or, or, or they're waiting about four to six? How many hours before insemination? Is it, is it about four to six like it normally is? So, yeah, and, and this is interesting. So it's four to six hours. I tried to figure out where that came from. And the, uh, you know, embryologists and, and um, might say things like, well, the egg needs to mature a little bit more because, you know, we're retrieving at 36 hours and it might not be normally ovulating until 39 or 40 hours. But the fact of the matter is the reason that people use four to six hours is that we like to do our IVF in the morning and we don't like to be coming in in the middle of the night to check at 16 to 18 hours later to check for fertilization. So it's really the, the primary purpose of that delay is to is to allow the embryologist not to, uh, you know, not not to have to come in at two or three in the morning for the for the fertilization checks. For the fertilization checks, so so the later, so if you wait four to six hours, then you could wait fertilization checks to the next morning. The earlier insemination, they would have to check later on in the day. Right now, I think with time lapse now, and and if if you're using time lapse incubators to check fertilization, then it would, and this is what I think is really the main benefit potentially to time lapse is, is that it uh, can kind of improve the workflow in, in the IVF lab because it will allow you to do the fertilization check whenever you want to. It's, it's, it's been recorded. Right, right. So the study that, that you all published um, in uh, JARG, the Journal of Assisted Reproductive Genetics, um, it not only was, was talking about equal success in, in a small study, albeit, but not only talking about equal success from the conventional uh, fertilization versus, versus intravaginal culture of embryos, but you also talk about minimal stimulation, minimal ultrasound monitoring. Could, could you elaborate on that? Yes. So we, we strongly felt that, you know, the reason that we were doing this was because to improve access to fertility care. And we felt that we needed to approach the whole IVF process differently and to simplify it on both ends, not just the laboratory end, but also the great complexity that, that our monitoring involves. And uh, as, you, as you well know, within the last uh, few years, we, we have really very reliable methods to predict the response to the, to the fertility drugs. Um, and, and actually, there are two markers. You know, I'm an old school old guy, so uh, back in the day we used to use things like age, and, 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 and that makes no difference. There are really only two things that predict response. One is the AMH level, and two is the body weight. And using those together, we preset a dose, and, and we don't do any blood testing or monitoring during the stimulation until the 10th day. After nine doses on that 10th day, we do a single sonogram to determine when the when the follicles are likely to be ready, um, and then we 
So on that day, make a judgment. Are we going to trigger them today? Are we going to trigger them tomorrow or the next day? And the patient is at that one visit given their instructions um, for trigger uh, or, or to continue dosing and then trigger um, and their time to come in for the, for the egg retrieval. Um, so we, we simplify it all. There, there are either two, depending upon which protocol we use now, we have either two or three visits during the entire process all the way to transfer. So uh, obviously, tons of questions uh, come to mind. Uh, I'm as old school as you, and uh, you have BMI, a body mass index. You think that's more reliable combined with an AMH than including antral follicle count? So uh, yes, I do. I, I do think that. The, so up until a couple years, about two years ago, when there wasn't an automated, very reliable, reproducible AMH. And we certainly oftentimes would see um, cases where, where the patients didn't respond as, as predicted. Um, now the, the two automated systems that are out there that are very reproducible, that together with you know, the body weight is, is, is very allows us to predict with, with, with good accuracy the, mm -hmm. um, the response. Now, we were very careful. Uh, we do do an antral follicle count just for a reality check and make sure it's consistent with the AMH. Um, and then we, we repeat the AMH twice. We, we do it twice just to make sure that, that you know, there, there wasn't any laboratory error. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, I would, uh, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and, I, and I would emphasize that we use body weight, not so much body mass index. I always give the analogy that, that uh, my wife and I have the same BMI, but I'm 50% I'm 50 heavier than her because I'm a foot taller, right? And mm -hmm. so uh, if we were to each drink two glasses of wine, her blood alcohol level would be much higher than mine. She's, I've got the bigger volume of distribution, so, so it's weight-based. Well, we're not going to go into your, so, your social practices, but I, I appreciate uh, uh, the analogy. But um, so age, not as much of an issue. You have AMH. Uh, and by the way, fantastic. Now, so what? So given that you've virtually eliminated the lab and and minimal to no ultrasound monitoring and blood work, without giving specifics of costs, Kevin, what what percentage reduction in cost are you looking at from from a standard IVF versus intravaginal culture? It's it's half the price. Oh my goodness! Isn't that isn't that fantastic? Wow. Well. Um, you know, it, it's. It... I was going to add one other thing. Um, yeah. After we've been doing it a lot, what we have found was that the best embryos actually develop more quickly in, in the vaginal culture than they do in, in the IVF labs. So we, we started to see six a, a fully hatched embryos on the morning of day five, which, which are virtually never seen in, in an IVF lab. And it wow. uh, made us recognize that our IVF incubators are really not designed to be natural and that they're, you know, they were designed with, with quality control in mind so the temperature doesn't vary. But you and I know that there's a daily variation in temperature, that it's, it's lowest in the morning because you've been inactive all night, you start moving around, your temperature goes up because of the heat generated right. by the muscle activity, and, and that's daily. And we also know that there's a temperature shift because of the progesterone that's released after ovulation. So there are two things going on that just aren't mimicked by our incubators. 
Right, right. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Okay, so question about the stimulation protocol. In the study, you, you used an agonist. Um, what, what made you choose that as opposed to the GnOH antagonist? And for our, view, for our listeners, agonists are uh, medication and as well as antagonists to, to suppress ovulation so you don't lose the follicles prematurely. But an agonist is given uh, toward the end of the prior cycle, and it takes about 8 to 10 days to reach effect, and then you start going into stimulation, whereas an antagonist... We, we, we use in the middle of stimulation. So how did you make that choice, Kevin? So I made it at the time because at that time the agonist was available, Lupron, for $99. And the antagonist was about that much for each dose. Okay. okay. Um, we, now do, <clears throat> we now do two different stimulations. And we've, you'll also notice in that study we, we didn't include women that had a high AMH level. They had right, to right. be a predicted inter- intermediate responder. We wanted to be able to serve that patient population as well, so we use antagonists routinely in that. Um, but we but we do it with a Lupron trigger, freeze all right. straight into the estrogen, yeah, yeah. and, and so we've streamlined that. Yeah, excellent. In our in our remaining moments, Kevin, uh, any contraindications? Who would not be a candidate for this? Um, so severe sperm issues. Um, women that want to do pre-implantation genetic testing, it doesn't lend itself for that either uh, because the embryos may not be starting to hatch for a whole host of reasons. Um, And then then body weight over 190 pounds. There we're we're not able to predict as well. You you, you have to use a higher dose, but you can get get, uh, unpredictable responses. So, So those women... I think are still better served by a conventional IVF process. Uh, well, this has been tremendously beneficial to, to, to me, and I know our audience uh, thanks you. Uh, Kevin, I, I appreciate you, you, you joining us today. I know your schedule is busy. Uh, everyone, Kevin, uh, Dr. Duty is, is one of the top reproductive endocrinologists in the country, uh, prior president of the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology. I'm, I'm saying that correctly, right, Kevin? Amy, Amy is president now, right? Uh, so, uh, Amy is president now, and, and um, I'm past, past president. Past president. Okay, 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 okay. Yes, yeah. Executive board. Yeah. Yes, I'm speaking of Amy Sparks, and we actually had her on uh, recently as well. Uh, if you are in the Dallas area, I would make sure that you go see Dr. Duty. He's a, he's the director of care fertility, and uh, you will have excellent care uh, at his center. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.